0: Before the pandemic I met with Chef Robert Viffian at Tandin, his restaurant located near the Eiffel Tower and the Rodin Museum in Paris. Tandin, a Vietnamese restaurant in the cultural center of France, has operated for over fifty years and was originally opened by Robert's mother in nineteen sixty-eight. Robert joined her in the kitchen in the early nineteen seventies when he was still a young man in his twenties. And then took over the restaurant full time as chef owner in 1978. Before then, he made a movie, played bass guitar, and survived the Tet Offensive while living in Saigon. Robert was born in Vietnam in 1948 and lived there as a child. When we recorded this interview, he was approaching the age of 70 and planning his first ever return visit to the country of his childhood. Beginning around the 1980s, Tanned In became a restaurant frequented by actors and artists, people like Marguerite Duras, Bertrand Tavernier, may he rest in peace, and quite a few Americans in Paris like Owen Wilson and Andy McDowell. It's a small restaurant, the kind where the owner both cooks your meal and opens your bottles of wine. And I do say bottles and not batole because Tandin is a place of pilgrimage for many wine aficionados, and no one would go there to try just one wine. The restaurant wine cellar, which I was lucky enough to visit with Robert's brother, Freddie, is absolutely and completely packed with bottles in every possible place and direction, and it is in fact the only cellar I have ever been in where you actually have to walk on top of cases of wine to get inside. In the cellar are vintage after vintage of Cocheterie, Lignier, Rumié, and many Bordeaux Chateaux, as well as, surprisingly, because this is France, some classic California wines. We discussed all of these and more in the interview. Chef Robert and I recorded in the dining room of Tandin in the morning before a service, and occasionally you can discern the noises of a restaurant opening its doors to the public in the background of our conversation, which you will hear soon. But before we get there, I want to play for you a remembrance from Stephen Spurrier, who recently passed away. Robert and Stephen were friends, and Robert taught wine classes for a while at a school that Stephen co-founded. Here is Stephen talking about the origins of that wine school.
1: The Place La Concorde was full of the American law firms and, and people like that, and they used to just come by in the evening, not every evening, but they used to make it make Thursday evenings. said, okay, Stephen, what's new? And then that was the beginning of the idea of l'Académie du vin, because I was giving them the wine tastings, and of course talking them through the wines and and uh one of them said, "You know, if you could ever put this on as in a structured way, we'd love to do a wine course. You know, we don't know anything about wine and so that got into my mind, and then prior to that. I'd met with John Winroth, who was the wine correspondent on the Herald Tribune, and I kept on sending him bottles that I liked Of the note saying, this is Stephen Spurrier, I hope you like this wine. I knew that this should interest him. He'd not replied to any of the wines I sent him. And so instead of just sending it, I went to the Herald Tribune offices in the Rue de Berry, in the 8th, and I got in a tiny lift. I asked the desk where... John Winroth worked, he said he's on the third floor. So I got out of the lift on the third floor and there was a tall, thin gentleman going into the lift and I said, sorry to bother you, but where can I find John Winroth? He said, I'm John Winroth. And I said, well, I'm Stephen Spurrier. Oh, you're the guy who's sending me all these damn bottles. And I said, I got another one for you. He said, well, put it on my desk and I'm going out to lunch, let's go out to lunch. And so we went to a brass rib. And John and I stayed there two hours, two hours or so drinking Beaujolais and got on like a house on fire. And he was teaching junior year students, American junior year students, about wine in the back of cafes. And I said, look, John, if, if, if I can find a premises, I think we could open a wine school together because you've got this junior year abroad program. You speak fluent French, therefore we can do courses in French. I've got this American, Anglo-Saxon clientele. We have the clientele, and since we're starting from nothing, we can create what we're going to teach. He said, brilliant idea. And then, another bit of luck, the premises next door to the Cabin Madeleine came up for sale. It was a locksmith, and they had a big ground floor premises and a big office upstairs and I was already expanding. This was um, October 72, and um, the locksmith shop went out for auction. No one was really bidding, we bought it. And so I took over the locksmith shop, had it entirely renovated and cleaned out, and opened L'Académie du Vin, the first private wine school in France, opened by an Englishman and an American. John Bronier, who had been born in Greece,
0: was in the habit of using his middle name, Winroth, for the publication of the many wine articles he wrote while living in France. In 1972, he co-founded the wine school with Stephen Spurrier and Patricia Gallagher. But the next year, in 1973, Winroth became severely ill and was diagnosed with a serious kidney condition. When I spoke with her, exporter Becky Wasserman recalled that period of time and her friendship with... John Winroth. The bottles I remember have to do with the circumstance. And John Winroth, who did do this wonderful article in the Herald Tribune years and years ago, uh, was a man who died of a genetic kidney condition. And when he came and told me about it, um, I mean, I hadn't bought any wines. I I went into Bart's cellar and pulled out a Latache, and we sat in the back on the lawn there and we drank it together. I will never forget that bottle because I remember John told me, which meant, you know, I am going to die one of these days and so on and so forth. I remember that. By maintaining careful treatment for his disease, Winroth would go on to live for multiple decades after his initial diagnosis. He continued to write about wine until his retirement in the year 2000, including in a book entitled Wine As You Like It that was published in 1981. John Winroth passed away in 2006. I talk to winemakers all the time, and something they tell me is that oxygen management is a key to aging wine. Finding the right balance is crucial, and that's why I recommend DM's revolutionary cork closures. With DM corks, winemakers can achieve precisely controlled oxygen management after a bottle leaves the winery, ensuring a wine that matures gracefully and reaches its full potential. With over 2 billion DM corks sold each year, it's clear that winemakers worldwide trust DM for consistent results. And DM has recently expanded the permeability options for their popular DM10 and DM30 closures, providing winemakers with even more flexibility to choose a cork that will guarantee the kind of wine life they envision. Banish surprise dud bottles, And embrace DM closures. Your customers will thank you. In North America, DM products are exclusively distributed by G3 Enterprises. Ready to ensure the lifespan of your wines? Go to dm closures.com forward slash IDTT to learn more. That's D I A M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash IDTT for more information. You were born in 1948. Yes. And you were born in Saigon.
2: I was born in Saigon. I came very early in in France uh, when I was 18 months. I left when I was 5. And I went back when I was uh, 20, minus one day. What was Saigon like as a kid? Fantastic. Even when we were attacked, you know, during the uh, the Tet Offensive in 68. But the funny thing is that you don't realize things are actually dangerous uh, before it came to your door. You live with it. You, uh, you adjust to what is around. And uh, I made a lot of American friends playing music with them and so on, uh, being a a bass guitarist. Playing, you know, rather simple music like, you know, The Beatles, The Kings. and I was not such such a big fan of Elvis Presley because I think Presley is just a singer. Well, of course, he's a big uh, social influence and so on, but uh, he's not a songwriter.
0: Yeah, Dylan's a songwriter.
2: Exactly. Uh, Roy Orbison is a fantastic uh, songwriter. Johnny Cash is a songwriter. He didn't write that much, but uh, he was a good songwriter.
0: Johnny Cash can be affecting with few words. This is really his gift, I think. Yes. What were the members of your family like at that time? Did you have a large family?
2: No. By Vietnamese standard, you know, just my brother and I. My father left uh, Vietnam in 57, my mother in 61, my elder brother in 55, and then myself in 68.
0: There must have been a wave of Vietnamese immigration around the same time or a little later.
2: Well, the big wave came after 75, you know, uh, but our case was totally different because uh, we've been French for three generations. So uh, I had to come to France, you know, to go on with my studies because uh, it was very difficult for us to get into uh, Vietnamese universities. I see. And what did you study in France? English civilization. I'm a big fan of uh, English music, English literature. And I even wrote 250 pages on gastronomy in the British Isles. That was my MA. And I tried to do my PhD on, uh, you know, the uh, gastronomy in France. And finally, um, the professor didn't like, you know, the subject. He wanted me to help uh, him on his own uh, works. And I I said, OK, I'm dropping out.
0: So you started to see the culinary arts as part of the culture
2: It's enormously important because I do not think that anything enter your body except beverage and uh, food. How do you
0: think you came to that conclusion?
2: I just enjoy eating and drinking, so this is why I decided to uh, to be a chef and uh, I got interested in wines you know in in sixty eight because of the restaurant and uh, my father was very angry because there's no point there for in studying, if you want to be a chef. So he said to me, pass all your exams, and after that you do what you want. So I passed my exam, and uh, each time I was passing my exam, he was giving me uh, a reward. And I say, if I'm getting a- grades, do I get more? He said yes. So I work hard in order to get uh, more money, and the money was for buying record and wine. Was
0: cooking something that allowed you to spend more time with your mother?
2: Probably, because she taught me. So I was, yes, constantly with her. And I was much closer to my mother when I was young than my father. It evolved after after her death.
0: And I feel like you've made explicit at times the connections, even in Vietnam, between what we think of as Vietnamese classic dishes and French cuisine. There was a back and forth that you realized.
2: Yes, the back and forth uh, I was not conscious of. The aim uh, was to make uh, what I thought was uh, actual genuine Vietnamese cooking. And because my mother always said to me when uh, we were eating out, this recipe is not correct. So I said to her, you know, in Vietnam we have uh, almost no culinary books. How can you know it is right or not? Actually, you know, we've been doing it... uh, My mother's doing it this way, and it has to be this way. I said, to her, maybe it doesn't work like that. So I asked many friends the same recipe, and I tried to get many generations, as many generations as possible. So for me, it was a kind of archaeologic research for the recipes. And after that, I said, I was trimming things that I thought was added by families. So you get the central core, which for me was the actual cooking the actual recipe.
0: Did you, in the back of your mind, think that you may not be able to return to Vietnam and you wanted to preserve some of that?
2: No. Because, in fact, when I arrived in, in Paris, my aim was to go back to Vietnam. And it didn't happen because uh, I met my wife and things became a little bit more, I would say, fascinating in France because, of course, of uh, wine and food and uh, so many things. I have not been back yet. Since
0: you left, how old are you today? I'll be seventeen September. Were you embraced by the parish chefs? Did they find uh, camaraderie with you? Yes, a lot. And strangely, with no uh, uh,
2: Chinese or Vietnamese chef. I'm very close to a lot of uh, French chefs. Probably uh, because of wine. I'm very close
0: to the um, Trois Gros and people like that, yes. What were wine tastings like in the 70s in Paris? Almost nothing, because uh,
2: the trade was not aware of the fact that uh, they needed to sell wine, and so there was no tasting uh, organized. So what I was doing is that uh, I was buying the wine myself, so I needed money, so this is why I was trying to get grades.
0: Did your dad, Leon, like wine?
2: He's interested in wines, but uh, he said it's too complicated. And he was weird because he was drinking wine with ice cubes. Put ice cube in it. it hurt me. But, you know, he's my father, so I say, you no, know, it's not right, but I uh, do whatever you
0: want. He probably picked that habit up in Vietnam because the climate's warmer. Yes, the climate is warm, yes. But uh,
2: you have to realize at that time, wine was not that often drank in Vietnam, but it was expensive. But he used to drink a lot of hard liquor, whiskey. So whiskey, they drank with a lot of ice cubes. So I think he preferred at that time hard liquor to uh, dilute it somewhat.
0: But your younger brother really liked wine.
2: No, Freddy is the elder brother. I'm the younger one. He, he liked wine. So this is how I convinced him to give his pocket money to me to buy wine together.
0: And you used to do tastings together?
2: Yes. And since wine was not expensive, it was expensive for students. Because, you know, students, you need, you know, uh, uh, money to go to uh, discotheques, you know, in the weekend to pick up girls and so on. So we bought a whole bottle. I split it in a half. I corked it right away with the actual cork. And we were drinking, you know, the, uh, the other half. So it allowed us to taste the same wine twice. So I was writing on the etiquette the wine and the date. I still have some. That I forgot. So, and some wines are really weird now.
0: Really? What were some of them?
2: We could buy, you know, very expensive wines uh, at that time. A bottle of uh, a premier cru was uh, fifty nine, great vintage. Retail at Nicolas, ten francs. So, oh wow! It means a euro and a half. Uh, Petrus, uh, really, really rare. You can find that, you know, occasionally, but in other shops it was something like. Uh, 35 francs, Ikem was 35. The Premier Grand Cru was around 30, 35. So uh, my pocket money was uh, weekly 50. With my brother, we had 100. So, of course, we were not drinking Premier Cru. Just, you know, for Christmas or things like that, because Nicolas uh, during Christmas time was opening the rare wines cellar. So I bought my first Romaine Conti thanks to Nicolas. But they was only selling one bottle per person, so we cheated. We went to different shops in order to buy what well, two or three more. I remember buying something like a twenty-five francs Musigny forty-nine vogue So we we picked up, you know, twenty bottles of it in different shops. Some of them in the suburbs. So you had to take, you know, the uh, the trouble to do it. When did you meet Stephen Spurrier? Uh, I met Stephen Spurrier. He came to dinner. And we uh, we became friends because it's easy at that time with not so many people interested in uh, you know, seriously passionate about wine. I think it was around 73. And after that, he told me he was going to uh, to do a wine tasting course in English in Paris. I think in the out of your mind it's a, it's a very stupid idea. And he was doing it with John Winroth, uh, which was writing for wine in the Herald Tribune. Unfortunately, John Winroth had a very bad kidney disease. He had to to have dialysis, you know, twice a week. So he left the academy, and the academy was very successful. I was really surprised. And uh, so Stephen asked me, uh, I I need a teacher, so can you do it for me? So I was teaching uh, for a year and a half. I I was studying English in order to be a teacher. Funny thing, I never taught anything but food and wine. What was your approach to teaching? You show them, you know, the uh, the most typical wine of that area. You tell them vaguely how it's made and uh, about the terroir. And uh, you taste the wine and you discuss it. But most of the time, uh, you did all the talking. (laughs) Because uh, people are not that inquisitive. I'm surprised. But maybe because uh, the lesson was something like an hour, an hour and a half, and people would rather learn than uh, ask questions. Because question takes time.
0: Sometimes I think people are afraid to be embarrassed by asking the wrong question.
2: Yes, and sometimes, you know, when they're beginners,
0: you know, they rather listen. What was your approach to tasting? What kind of taster were you?
2: I've always been extremely uh, meticulous. I always took notes. Much less now, because I have less time. And uh, the tasting now are so uh, huge. Sometimes, uh, how can you take notes when uh, serious notes when you have uh, three hundred wine to taste, you know, in three hours? So now I rely on my memory. I just put a few. In fact, I like taking notes when I have the time because it allows me to breathe, and I think breathing is very important because uh, otherwise you breathe alcohol all the time. So you need to to breathe, you know, some air, some oxygen, you know, to detox your lung for a few seconds.
0: Did you always have a good memory? It seems to me you have a good memory.
2: Well, a little bit less now because I'm getting old. But,
0: um, I don't think so. You're pretty sharp. Well, let's see. But was it an advantage you had in school? Could you just remember things well? Yes. But, you know, I've been, you know,
2: the, the serious type of students always underlining, taking notes. and uh, But wine is more fun because it's uh, really actual. You taste, so you have the pleasure. Uh, it's not just words or figures. What was Spurrier like back then? Spurrier, he was very close to me, tasting-wise. He's serious, and uh, yeah, he was uh, very like me. He was a close friend. I asked him to be best man at my wedding, and uh, uh, what was accepted? Unfortunately, he slipped a disc, so I replaced him by Alain Dutournier.
0: So it's good to have someone who can walk be your best man, right? Yes, but we're very
2: close. You know, We we were going to Burgundy together because uh, Stephen was less keen on Burgundy than I was. And he said to me, that was very nice. I need your support. So come. So I was coming with him. So, but it was really interesting because uh, he knew many more people than I did because uh, he opened a wine shop. And I only was, you know, uh, at that time, the the, the restaurant was not buying enormous quantities of wine. But anyway, um, a wine retailer and a wine restaurateur there was two persons that uh, people wanted to meet because uh, when, uh, for them it's selling. He introduced me to LaFont. In fact, I came down to LaFont with Serge Fichon, who was uh, representing LaFont at that time, and we met the father, Rene. Rene, yes. And after that, I met uh, Dominique, and Dominique was working at a certain time, maybe for more than a year for Becky Wasserman uh, when I met him. And when he took over the domain, it was with his brother, uh, Bruno. And Bruno was working at the same time for the Rouen. And after that, you know, uh, funnily enough, I think there was not enough money for them to make from the property for two persons. So Bruno left and did something else. I think he
0: got involved in jewelry. Or What was the difference between René's wines and Dominique's wines that you started to see? Dominique wines
2: especially, I think I told him when I first tasted it, I thought that the challenge was to make the Moirachet better than the rest. Seriously better than the rest. He succeeded and he made much better reds than the father.
0: His reds are really good for a white winemaker, you know what I mean? Because it's not often that people are good at both. But he makes, always, always make powerful wines.
2: Uh, He's not he's not uh, capable of making a uh, Meunier's wine. What was René like back then? Funny. Yeah. Because uh, he was an engineer uh, and he was teaching at Aré in Paris. And he was interested in wine making, and not at all by the culture. So this is why most, I think all of the, well, not all, but uh, most of the vineyards was uh, farmed by uh, people like Pierre Moret and... Uh, and sometimes I bought a Morachet from Pierre Moret and a Morachet from Lafont. I was comparing them since it was uh, very precise. Since, you know, they, uh, they're pressing the juice and they take 50% each. So it's the actual same juice. And the, the wines are incredibly different, were incredibly different because I do not have any left from Pierre Moret. Pierre Moret had a but well, I think he also
0: had part of the Claude Labarre. I didn't know that. That makes sense, though, as Métillage. Yes, yeah.
2: because of Métillage and uh, Dominique, after that, had to take back all the, uh, the Métillage. And it was difficult. But he said with Pierre, it, it was totally fine. Pierre was a gentleman. Because, of course, you know, for most of the farmers, it's a loss of money. And Dominique made a fantastic uh, quality leap for the viticulture because his by mission and so on. It's
0: fantastic. And you did harvest at Jacques Breer?
2: Yes, because they always invite us, you know, uh, to uh, to harvest, you know, the, uh, the Moirachet. It never happened. We're always are harvesting something else, sometimes, you know, under the rain. But we always had, you know, a fantastic lunch at the top of the Moirachet. It's been great fun.
0: Who else were you close to in Burgundy? Well,
2: more or less Humier. Koch. but Koch is a very special person. Uh, Jean-François, he's uh, a nice person, but he's not uh, congenial. So I remember the first time we went down tasting, uh, he was taking the pipette, pouring some wine to us, and after that he went topping the other barrels as if you know he he didn't care at all of our comments didn't trust him. I had that impression. <laughs> But he was very nice to me since, you know, sometimes I was, you know, uh, he was driving me, you know, to uh, other vintages and so on.
0: The first vintage of Koshi you had was 1981.
2: The first vintage I bought was 1981, but not from him. I bought from, uh, from London because uh, you couldn't find the wine in the shops. And uh, so I met Simon Taylor Gill. I don't know if you know about him. But he was teaching in France, and he, guy, yeah, is a great taster, and uh, he knew a lot about wines, and he was exporting to England, a Rouleau, Lafon, I think, and uh, Koch. So I bought Koch from him. And it was very funny, because uh, I didn't know Koch at that time, and I remember there was a, outside his house a barrel with a bottle, and with was a sign saying, we sell wine.
0: I don't think that barrel's there anymore.
2: Yeah, no, not anymore.
0: What were the wines like at that time? Very close to what they are now. Is that true? In the 80s they were similar? Yes. And he had his special
2: style of winemaking, so it's fun. What did you attribute that to? I think it's the combination of uh, a lot of lees and sulfur, plus, you know, the uh, very good oak. What does a coach that's young smell like to you? Uh, for me, it's a funny smell, but uh, it stinks a little bit. It's interesting, uh, bad odor, and uh, it's easy to recognize in the blind tasting. So I remember when, when I was uh, making blind tasting, I always put a, a Merceau or a with Merceau, against Merceau. I put a Kosh, so I say, you know, here's Kosh, the other one should be like this, like this, and like this. But I always compared, you know, the, uh, the stinkiness of uh, the Koch wine to uh, the mole in, on Marilyn cheek. A
0: beauty mark. Yes, yeah, a beauty mark. A friend of mine thinks, uh, Coach, uh, of that era smells like curry leaf. For me, it's more like durian. Well, it's not exactly
2: durian, but uh, that kind of uh, nice, nasty, but good. And I th-
0: think you visited almost every year, Koch, since that time?
2: Yes, not every year. It depends because uh, I do not like bothering them, you know. But uh, sometimes I went down with uh, Steve Tanzer because I enjoy tasting a lot with Steve. He's very good for Burgundies and he's a very good taster. He's also a very deliberate
0: taster and I think that you may be as well. Yes,
2: but he's not a marathon tasting like, like, you know, Bob or myself. Uh, He likes tasting few wines. I like, I want to taste as much as possible.
0: And you became fairly knowledgeable about the different crews of Koch. Yes. So if if you were to run through that with me, so that I could learn more, because it's a weak point for me, what would you tell me? The Perrier and the Rougeau are the most interesting wines
2: for me, especially the Rougeau. Price wise, is the uh, is incredibly. It's probably the uh, the wine I would advise people to buy before the Perrier, because the Perrier is already and Charlemagne for me is a uh, Probably because of the uh, price in secondary markets, I think you know it's, uh, it's disproportionate when you compare it to the Perrier. But now I, I've noticed that the Perrier is uh, getting more and more expensive and getting closer to uh, Charlemagne. In the old days, it was a double. Is his Perrier parcel next to Rouleau's parcel? Well, these are very good parcels. Yes, well, the parcels are probably better than the parcel from uh, Lafont. And strangely, with Lafont, I'm always uh, enamored with the uh, Charme, because he has such a big surface compared to, you know, proportionally to Burgundy, that he can pick the best ones, and he can discard a few of them.
0: And with Coach, he used to use a basket press, right?
2: Oh, yes. and I'm wondering if he hasn't bought one from from, uh, Louis Picamelot, you know, the the best uh, bubblies from uh, Burgundy.
0: And he used the bottle with a fountain
2: direct from the barrel? I'm not sure, because uh, uh, I think the wines are quite homogeneous. So it means that he cannot do it like Jaillet was doing in a barrel of a barrel. So he is not filtering. I have noticed that on the new labels, he was mentioning no filtration. In the old labels, it was n'a pas été filtré. Did you ever talk to him about filtering or fining? Like most people, I think, you no know, burgundy uh, lover... We thought that not filtering was good. I'm not that sure now, uh, because uh, I did something worse in '93 with Maurice Eckart for the uh, Serpentier, and my barrel was unfined and unfiltered, so no collage. And when it started, it was better than the, the one that has not been fined and was much better than the wine has been fined and filtered. I do not have any bottle left of the uh, regular bottling from, uh, from Louis Écartes, Maurice Écartes. Louis or Maurice, I can't remember. Probably Maurice. But I have the impression now that, that my wine that has not been collé is slightly less precise. And maybe the bacteria are doing something that is uh, less, uh, less fine. But uh, you can like it. It's getting uh, slightly more animal and less, you know, floral
0: less floral fruity. And so when you would visit Kosh, what was he like as a person besides not listening to you? <laughs> what was he like? Well, now it has uh, changed
2: uh, a lot, but that was the first time uh, we went. And he looks so much like uh, like a priest
0: and he's very serious, he's, uh,
2: but he's a, he's a very nice person.
0: What do you think he was aiming to achieve? Did he ever share
2: that with you? I think he was aiming to achieve uh, the best white wine possible because i think that he told me one that uh, his father was not interested in white wine and that was his challenge and Koch made irregular red wines the son is now making great red wines
0: when was your first visit to
2: christophe in the 70s but at that time it was i think it was jean marie his father i met jean marie who was uh, very nice and at that time, it was very easy to taste the wines. And you can taste the wine. They say, you know, okay, I'm not very rich. I can only buy one or two bottles of Musigny, And of course, I could buy, you know, the rest. But I, it was simple. And now to get a bottle of Musigny it's impossible.
0: How do you think it's the same or different how he interprets the Chambol crews versus the Maurice Saint-Denis crew? Well, it's uh, very faithful to the terroir. Since
2: uh, I think the Mouret Saint-Denis tastes like uh, Mouret Saint-Denis, it's, uh, the tannins are less, uh, I would say, less refined. And the Chambol village is uh, stunning for Chambol village. And uh, are the Shot that much different from uh, a Bonnemare f- uh, sometimes? Yes, but uh, I'm not 100% sure I'll pick them out in the blind tasting.
0: Did you try the Bonmar? Red soil, white soil comparison. Yes, often.
2: So it depends on vintage. I prefer, you know, the the, the red or the white. Yes, I think you know the uh, well, better. the assemblage is better. Better together. Because some years into the tannins are harsher, and some with the red sometimes it less. It's not as easy. It is different, but uh, not uh, that dramatically different. So I think the it's a good idea. This assemblage. And what do you think? Christoph's strengths are as a domain owner. He does everything right, but I always have an impression he can do better. That's strange. I taste, you know, almost every year, you know, at the domain, and I come out, I think, you know, it's great. And in the early stage, the ones are great. If you have the opportunity to come to taste, you know, at the uh, kind of association with a domain familial, with they call it, and it's uh, normally in March at uh, Le Doyen. And they give always bottled wine. And uh, you can taste them side by side. You have Meaux, Griveau, you have uh, Raveneau, you have the uh, you have... So you can taste Rousseau, you can taste them side by side. And most of the time, I think at the Roumier, Mar is the best wine of the, uh, the whole tasting. And when I taste the old wine, sometimes I say, not as good as I hoped. And same for, you know, the parts that owned by really one of my best friends, uh, Michel Bonfond, who owns the Ruchotte. I love the Ruchotte. It's not aging as well as I want, which is a shame. But I tasted a few, 78 recently, and they are stunning. So it's always maybe a fantasy of mine that I want it to be better.
0: What were some of the key Burgundy Domains that you really became familiar with that don't exist anymore? What were real standouts from old bottles that have disappeared? The
2: obvious one is Henri Jaillet. And I think Henri Jaillet is uh, was a master because uh, he, he, it was such a harmony uh, between the, uh, the viticulture, the winemaking, the élevage, the bottling, and even the marketing. Because uh, each time you meet him, you say, what a lovely person. Very simple, clear, and he can explain things that are in an extremely clever and intelligent way. Very easy to understand what he says. He doesn't try to uh to fool people. He was a great guy. And uh, the thing is that is it better than the uh, Conti? Is it the RC winemaking better than the or Roi better at winemaking because they are they insist more on uh, leaving the stems. And uh, not Jaillet. Jaye was totally, I think he never made wine uh, with stems. And I have a tendency to be more into uh, the de stemming. You like that? Yes, because uh, being a tea drinker, I know about extractions and I can see, you know, the harshness of certain things. So that's a problem. And when I see, you know, that the cheap teas have. Well, not stem, but they have, you know, the, uh, the end of it, which is harder, and very few leaves. You can see the difference. So this is why, you know, I do not like certain gray varieties that are uh, over Tannic.
0: And what did you see as the difference between the crews that
2: J. A. vinified? Well, the, the hierarchy is uh, totally weird at Jaillet, because normally the Richbourg should be the best, the issue should be second. The uh, Croparent parentou third, and then, you know, the Brûlé, the Merger, and so on. For the three best, which means uh, uh, Croparentou, parentou uh, and uh, Richebourg, none of them is winning constantly when you put them side by side. And I think it is due to the fact that it was uh, bottling barrel by barrel. So it's complicated. Uh, the last, you know, uh, time we did it and we, I'm not sure we'll do it uh, again because uh, you have to find the wines. Uh, we did Richbourg, Echezeau and Croparentou 78. The showed were the best. The Croparentou
0: was the least interesting of the three. Strange. What do you think Croparentou expresses at, uh, at its best? What are the characteristics of it? Which is the characteristic of,
2: of Jaillet in general. Extremely pure fruit. Extremely good oak. Sweet wines, civilized tannins, and always kept a florality to it. But it's almost uh, with uh, all this wine when you compare it to, uh, you, you put it side by side with other growers. Which is the most intense, the most intense wine for me is still the Richbourg, And after that, I would say the Croix, and after that, the Ischaudot. But maybe we, we is more interesting now for us, because uh, I think most of the uh, I would say, bulimic tasters now are going from uh, heavily extracted burgundy to much lighter. Did you visit Domaine Le Fleuve? Yes, I used to visit more than I do. And in fact, I love going tasting you know, Domaine Le Fleuve with uh, Steve Tanzer uh, because Steve Tanzer is allowed to taste the Moët. So when I'm with him, I'm allowed to taste the Moiraché. That's cool. <laughs> I was close to uh, Anne Claude. I remember when we had, you know, tasting at uh, Le Doyen, or for the domain privé, she was around, and uh, often, you know, we, we went uh, upstairs to eat at the restaurant, and she was a very nice person. She was a very nice person.
0: What do you remember about her?
2: She was uh, extremely keen on uh, biodynamics, and very early, so, and she was Right. I remember she always uh, wanted to prove it to, uh, to us when she started you know, doing the clavoyant. We always taste the clavoyant with uh, special vines and not special vines. And the difference was uh, startling.
0: What did you see as that difference?
2: More depth. In the biodynamic? Yes, and slightly more acidity, or the impression of acidity. Because, um, you know, you can be fooled by uh, the taste and when you see, you know, the figures and you say, oh, that's not different but. that." Uh, and uh, her father, Vincent, he's an ex uh, from Vietnam, so uh, he came very often, so we talk a lot. And uh, I remember I always had easily allocation, and even of a, uh, when I sometimes I forgot, because um, maybe I didn't like the vintage, but I didn't say that I didn't like the vintage.
0: <laughs> I didn't buy the wine. I could get back my allocation. What do you think some of the keys were to those wines in terms of understanding them? The
2: wines, for me, are puzzling because they are less fleshy than the wines from Lafon or Coche. They are more steely. It doesn't prevent them to have free And they are heavily, more heavily uh, suffered. It doesn't prevent them to be uh, oxidized.
0: Have you had the 15s? Yes,
2: I received it. So it's, it's funny because uh, one of my uh, close Belgian friends, Uh, We tasted uh, together at the uh, uh, Domaine Familiaux. And he said, this is a wine not to be bought from the uh, Le Fleur 15th. I tasted the wine. I didn't say to him, you're damn wrong. The wine is fantastic. So I wrote a letter saying, you know, I want my location. If you get more, it's better. (laughs) And this friend, uh, he's a good taster, but uh, he probably was uh, influenced by uh, people. What are some of your favorite vintages of Domaine Le Fleuve? 96. 96, she uh, she sold it to me, and she said, you know, don't sell it. Please keep it at least 10 years. I still have very few bottles left, and they are stunning.
0: I believe that you follow uh, Hubert Linier pretty closely. Well, yes, I buy every year
2: from him. Um, Shame that uh, Romain died. He was a very nice person and very talented. Laurent is the more congenial person, you know, they, let's hope he, he'll be as uh, talented as that. Uh, well, we'll see. I buy wine every year, so maybe I shouldn't make a vertical tasting.
0: What have you seen change in the burgundy market since the 70s? I mean, must be a striking difference. It's striking different, and the prices are up, up, up.
2: I understand, you know, these like vintages that they have to uh, raise a price because the harvest was so small, and now, you know, it's just too much demand for the and Well, normally, they should raise much more, because the demand is there. But it's dangerous. And you see, Kosh is not doing it. The prices direct from Kosh are very soft. So I think that's the way to do it. But you cannot satisfy the demand, the world demand. And you can see, you know, the price of Kosh now, uh, in the second market, they are soared up incredibly. And it's more or less deserved since uh, he didn't have premoxes. And most of the other women are having premoxes.
0: Did it surprise you how popular Burgundy ended up getting from the perspective of being there in the 70s and 80s? Has it been surprising?
2: It's totally amazing.
0: I thought that people would
2: get away from Burgundy. I was hoping so. It didn't happen. And uh, strangely enough, the Asians are keen on Burgundy, which I think is really surprising because uh, the marketing of Bordeaux was so fantastic and especially the uh, the smaller Bordeaux has lost a lot of interest from people. And now they're more interested in uh, in Burgundy. And finally now, uh, what is the American wine press now is, is keen on Burgundy. They used not to. Because uh, who was actually... Buying a lot of burgundies in the old time. Very few people. Except for the DRC, Vogue, you know, the really, I would say, famous and expensive ones. And now things are changing. Probably thanks to DRC and Jaillier and Koch, you know, that the three made magic name for them.
0: And how did you find that Burgundy interacted with your cuisine?
2: You know, pairing wine and food is much more complicated than one thinks, you know. I wrote a few articles about it. But it's uh, extremely personal. People do not chew than drink the same way. Some people are chewing very quickly, swallowing and drinking right away. Some people leave a few seconds. And when you leave a few seconds, it's always easier. And you have to take into concentration something that is uh, not very interesting or pretty to hear. But uh, nobody has the same dental cavities. So it means that dental cavities, when they are deeper or larger, you have more residues of of the food, of the uh, solid food. And they stay in the cavities. So it means that they are present for a very long time. And the wine just... You swallow the wine, you drink it, and you swallow it very quickly. So the, the time of the contact between the, the wine and the food is totally disproportionate. So th- this is how... For me, people do not feel that the, the pairing of food and wine is the same for, I mean, when you take it and oh, well, this goes well, and so, say, you know, for me, it doesn't go well. It's one of the uh, answers for me.
0: We've spoken a fair amount about Burgundy, but I know that you spend a lot of time in Bordeaux as well. Yeah, especially, uh,
2: especially Pomerol, since um, I was nicknamed Monsieur Pomerol by L'Amateur des Vins de Bordeaux.
0: And how did you see the different terroirs of Pomerol?
2: When you speak about chateaux, which are brands, it's more complicated because I I remember at a certain time I went down with a map, a very detailed map, you know, of Pomerol, and I wanted, you know, the the growers to to show me where are their parcels. And sometimes they're really spaced over, you know. It's it's not one stuff, it's the parcel all over the the Appellation. So it means that the wines are not as uh, terroir Telling as Burgundy, what well, Burgundy, of course, you know they can have a, a different plots, you know, all over the appellation, but uh, it's more precise in Burgundy. So the terroir, of course, you know, we all know that the grave and the, uh, the clay are the two most important things in uh, in Pomerol. And the strange thing at Pomerol is that you know the a little bit like puligny It's very difficult to have cellars because they have water. When you you dig, you get water right away. And uh, have you noticed that Pully Moirachet, there are no cellars? They cannot dig.
0: For you, what's the difference between the clay expression of Pomerol? Yes,
2: because clay and Merlot is uh, almost a perfect match, at at least so far. The the upper part of Pomerol is heavily uh, with special clay. uh, are more quality-driven. And after that, you have, you know, the uh, the assemblage. You have uh, assemblage, of course, of grape varieties and of plots, And the grape variety is very interesting. Pomeroy is almost 100%. Uh, Petrus is almost 100% mellow. And a lot of people are trying to emulate that. Le Pain is a 100% mellow. And some of the uh, Saint-Emilion are becoming 100% mellow. They're going back to Cabernet Franc now. I remember in the old days, people were always saying to me, "Médoc is Cabernet Sauvignon, Pomerol is Merlot, and Cabernet Franc is Saint-Emilion," which is less and less true. Even the Merlot is gaining ground, and Saint-Emilion Cabernet Franc is making a big comeback.
0: How have you seen structural differences like that between the 70s and now in Bordeaux? The technique has
2: evolved a lot. The what uh, was well, the Culture a lot also because. Uh, some of them, few, but are going to biodynamics. And uh, it's becoming more and more precise because in the old days, uh, there was no second wines. Everything that was harvested was uh, in the premier vin. And now you have first, uh, second wine, and you have four wines sometimes. I think what has Chateau Latour? Le Grand Vin, Le Fort de la Tour, Pauillac, and they probably have uh, a wine that they sell in bulk. So we've got four hierarchies of wine. So I think it is the, uh, the important point, selections, and now the uh, biodynamics or culture that are m- much more well done than the other days. The yields are probably lower. The vinification has changed a lot. Much more, I would say, better extraction. And now they some of them do not want to call it uh, extraction anymore. They want to, you to call it infusion. And in my opinion, the best quality-price ratio now is in Bordeaux, and especially the uh, the Bordeaux superior and Première Cote, uh, Cote de Blaye, you know, Cote de fond so I think the quality is incredible for the price, and they they cannot sell as easily as they want. So it's totally uh, unfair. And if you make blind tastings with a lot of wines, uh, with the Cru Classé. The difference now is minimal, and the price is much higher. I think people should go back to to Bordeaux. They deserve it, and the wines are actually fantastic. They're reliable. I remember 20 years ago, I was tasting for Cuisine et Vins de France. That was one of the most fascinating tastings, plural. We did it for a few years. Supermarket wines. So it means that Karine Valentin, who was the, the head of that tasting... She was buying wines from the supermarket, bottled wines. And uh, you have Côte Rhône, you have Bordeaux, Burgundy. Bordeaux was very reliable. Sud, Le Sud, it was Languedoc-Roussillon, was rather reliable. The worst was Burgundy. The Burgundy that you found in the supermarket was filthy. And it happened much more in Burgundy. I was really surprised, about over 20 years ago.
0: When we return from the break, an important figure in the history of Bordeaux enters into Robert's life and becomes a key mentor for him. When did you first meet uh, Jean-Claude Barraway? In the uh, late 70s. That's coming up right after this. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to IdealWine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to IdealWine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E dot to see for yourself what you could be drinking. As the technical director of Establishment's Jean-Pierre Moliacs, Jean-Claude Barraway oversaw the winemaking for famed Bordeaux properties Chateau Petrus, Chateau Trotenois, and several others. But Berraway was not the obvious choice for the job that he would end up holding for over 40 years. When he was originally hired by Jean-Pierre Moyex, Berraway was still a young man, and the chance to make Chateau Petrus initially came to him as a bit of a shock. This is how Jean-Pierre's son, Christian Moyex, recalled that period of time. Christian and Jean Claude Berraway would end up working together at Petrus and at other properties for about four decades.
3: Uh, Jean Claude Berraway was met first by my father as a trainee. Uh, He was 22 in 1964. And he met my father, and my he, he kind of, uh, at, as he, at his own surprise. I mean, Jean-Claude was very surprised. Uh, my father said, oh, "Why don't uh, you, you come and work for us?" Um, his approach, almost philosophical, and which fits, which fits so well my my father's approach, was one is for drinking. You see, so clearly. He would love the wines, and Merlot was such a feat for him uh, to be gentle, to be pleasant, to give pleasure.
0: It was a new era for Petrus when Berraway took over the winemaking in 1964, as the previous owner, Madame Lubat, had passed away in 1961. Christian Moyax joined Berraway at Petrus in 1970, and when you hear about the vintages of Petrus from around that time, it can sound like they were striving for an understated interpretation of a terroir that tended to give powerful wines. Rather than playing for even more power and even more alcohol, they elected to do the opposite.
3: Petrus was always higher in alcohol uh, uh, than its neighbors. Even in uh, uh, those weak vintages of the 70s, we were always at 13. There's a natural richness. What is so special about Petrus It is a wine with great character, I would say. Complexité is is a word which is abused, but uh, there is, of course, a complexity in any great wine. Uh, But character, you know, it stands by itself.
0: It's worth emphasizing here that Petrus, amongst Pomerol wines, can stand out for how powerful it is. As a wine from Pomerol, Petrus is not typical, and that is something many people have noted as a complement
3: of that wine. Among the Pommers, which, as I said, are so approachable in their youth, that will not apply to Petrus. Petrus uh, has a natural structure. I will not say tannic structure, but a a structure which makes it uh, uh, a little... uh, how could I say, autant in French, I would say, that, that dignity means that uh, here I am, I am what I am, and that's it, you see. So then it softens with age, but that uh, natural structure, I would say, is a man uh, who, who is uh, convinced of, not of his quality, but of his strength, you see.
0: You can grasp here the juxtaposition of Barraway's style, which privileged drinkability instead of extraction, with the terroir of Petrus, which tended to give wines of strength and structure. I have never spoken to Jean-Claude Barraway about this or even asked him this question, but it seems to me from this vantage point that he was playing a bit against type when it came to Petrus, probably because he did not want the wines to become overblown or made into a caricature of themselves. He was producing Petrus in a more understated way without going for a super ripe result. Now, the important thing to understand is that as the 1980s moved into the 1990s, Chateau Petrus was acknowledged and widely praised as one of the very greatest wines in the entire world. Both the 1989 and 1990 vintages of Petrus received 100-point scores from the influential wine critic, Robert Parker, scores that indicated that they were perfect wines. But by the time the early 2000s had come along, Jean-Claude Barraway was somewhat taken to task by that same wine critic, and Parker labeled Barraway's approach as ultra-conservative in multiple editions of his books. When applying that label, Parker probably had in mind as a contrast the higher ripeness levels associated with another right-bank winemaker Michel Roland. Berraway was often contrasted with Roland around that time. Berraway, for his part, rejected the trend towards what he termed a standard taste, or what might be referred to as parkerization these days. And here it is worth keeping in mind that wines from the same grape varieties, as they move towards overripeness, tend to taste more and more alike. These discussions about ripeness weren't always entirely amicable at the time, and they were not academic either. Parker's opinions had large ramifications in the wine buying market. Christian Moyax, when I brought up the question of ripeness, said that that subject had always been a tricky one between himself, Parker, and Jean Claude Barraway. And Barraway, for his part, was quoted in the Washington Post in 2006 as saying, A wine should tell you the story of the place it came from. If I'm a conductor playing Mozart, can I add notes to it? Pretentious men do this. Which sounds pretty steadfast about his own approach. But it seems clear that the criticism of that approach was also on his mind when he further remarked in that same interview, you need to be realistic, and the day you can't make a living, you have to change. Jean-Claude Berraway would retire from establishment's Jean-Pierre Moyex the very next year, in 2007. The man who had originally hired him to make Petrus Jean-Pierre Moyex had already passed away back in 2003. Christian Moyex would note in his remarks about Bereway that Bereway had always favored elegance over extraction. But it's worth noting that Christian Moyex, when I interviewed him, discussed his own shift towards preferring a riper style of wine in more recent years.
3: Since I left Petrus, it's a fascinating experience. It's a second youth for me, or a third career, I don't know, to give to the other chateaus, specifically uh, La Flore Petrus, Trotanois. The right amount of concentration uh, uh, I like, uh, and... Probably the recent vintages I have made are a little richer, a little more concentration, a little higher level of tannins as well. That's what I like today. It may be an evolution. When you get older, you, you need uh, uh, stronger wines. Wines have become kind of an elixir for me and uh, medication almost.
0: And a similar shift also happened for the wines of Chateau Petrus, where a riper, more powerful expression of the wine is made today by Olivier Barraway, who is one of Jean-Claude Barraway's sons. Let's return to Robert Viffian's interview to hear more about his first meeting with Jean-Claude Barraway. When did you first meet uh, Jean-Claude Barraway?
2: In the uh, late 70s. Uh, I had an appointment I was supposed to meet uh, uh, Jean-Claude, and out of luck, I was uh, having lunch at uh, with my wife at uh, Logis de la Cadenne in Saint-Emilion, and was sitting uh, with a friend of it just next. And uh, so during the meal, he he stood up and he, he asked me, are you the person I'm going to meet uh, this afternoon? I said, if you are Jean-Claude Berreux, yes. So this is how we connected and after that uh, you know we uh, we probably shared a few glasses uh, in the restaurant so we we had a night nice chat together and i learned tremendously from uh, from him wine tasting and more what did he tell you about acidity and about sweetness and acidity in the wine and he said to me be careful because sometimes you think you had this acidity and it's not totally correct and uh, he showed me you know the uh, the analysis of the of the wines so you see you got this, this acidity in this wine and the other one so it's sometimes it's counterbalanced by a certain kind of uh, richness in the wine or whatever it helped me a lot
0: to realize the perception and
2: yes there were things that are more complex than the just direct uh, direct taste of acidity in your mouth and after that you know uh, Sometimes I ask do you have the chemical analysis I want to see them for that wine? Some of them do not want.
0: So what well, And what was the style of Jean Claude Berway?
2: Jean Claude Berouet, I think it's uh, close to Peinault in a way, but he was more interested than Peinault with viticulture and which was extremely rare at that time with Bordeaux people, with you know, winemakers in general especially that they are oenologists. They are not supposed to be, uh, not to tend the vines. But he got interested very early.
0: And how did you see the characteristics of the different YX properties?
2: Well, the style of Jean-Claude is, uh, I would say, a refined from uh, Émile Peynaud, plus, you know, the uh, uh, cultural stuff. And uh, the style is still, well, if you want to compare it to, to uh, Michel, Michel Rolland, which is, uh Something I like very much, I would say it's almost uh, between morte and Meunier.
0: with uh, morte being Roland
2: exactly, and more extraction, more sweetness, and rightly so. And I do think that the uh, Beroissant is evolving slightly toward uh, Roland style in some uh, lunches, you know there was lunch with the uh, Pomol Union. I was eating you know, normally with the Roland or the Muex. and I was in you know, the shifting. And people were thinking this was really strange. I'm friends with both of them. There's no point. We can discuss, you know.
0: And you developed a rapport with both Michel Roland and Robert Parker. Yes. Robert
2: Parker was uh, introduced to me by a late friend uh, who was heading uh, something like IDV, you know, Chateau Loudaine. And uh, since uh, at that time I was specializing in Pomol, so... uh, Bob came over with uh, that person, Martin Bamford, and um, he wanted me to uh, to tell him about the Pomar. So this is how we became friends. And uh, thanks to him, Michel Roland came uh, to see me, and uh, we became very close with uh, Roland. And at that time, it was easy to taste with Parker, because uh, Michel was organizing a tasting in Chateaus. Well, Chateau de Pommel, when we are tasting the Pommel. In the afternoon, we were tasting the Saint-Emilion. And after that, we are tasting, you know, the lesser Appellation, another chateau. And we're moving like that. And some of the owners were invited. And starting from 1990, uh, Michel decided no. It was only the owner of the property, himself and Parker. And still I was around, Parker told me, okay, Robert, come, come with us. So we're tasting the four of us, just like that. And it went on for a long time.
0: What did you observe about Parker as a taster?
2: Parker is an extremely reliable taster. He can be very good at blind tasting also when it comes to wine that uh, he likes. Uh, he, he's extremely spontaneous. I'm almost the opposite, since I, I taste according to the appellation. I do not taste according to my taste. Well, I taste according to my taste, but also according to the appellation. Parker is more closer to his taste. So this is how he can be so reliable. Seemed like a nice guy in person. Parker's a darling. But he can be really interesting because uh, sometimes when we were tasting at uh, some chateaux, and I got out of it, I said, you know, I don't like uh, the wine of the owner. And he said to me... uh, me neither. So I think, you know, how can you? you know, he's hosting us, uh, we're having lunch with him, you know, tasting old wine and so on. So it would be difficult for me to write. You know, for me, you no. Know. He said to me, no problem, I'll do it anyway. But I think that's great stuff because it's so kind and so spontaneous and sometimes it can be totally impartial. So that's an interesting dichotomy. And this is one of the reasons why I do not want to, to write about it because. Uh, I have friends, and it's difficult for me to, to put them down. And I always try to be not too nasty, so it's not a good way of uh, writing. What else struck you about Parker? His appetite. Uh, he eats uh, as much as I do. His favorite restaurant is uh, probably Le Milouis. And Le Milouis, portions are enormous. But I'm eating, well, according also to the appellation. When I have to eat a lot, I can eat a lot when uh, I eat, you know, Japanese food, or you know, I can eat very little. But he, he has enormous appetite. And uh, he's a great taster. No doubt about it. I remember, it's a few blind tasting where he picked out the wine easily, because at l'angelus I remember, he picked out two or three wines.
0: And what did you recognize about Michel Roland as a taster? Because he's famed for being a good blender. He's a fantastic
2: taster. And he's a uh, it should be better than we are, because he, he knows about the, uh, the technical aspect of the wines. He knows about the figures, the analysis, and so on. And uh, we do not know that much about vinification, Elevage, and so on. And the guy has so much experience, you know. He's vinifying in uh, so many vineyards, so many countries. How many wines do a guy from Bordeaux makes when he's just an owner? It's one or two wines. He makes 100 wines a year. So can you imagine, you know, the, the experience he has gathered? And he, what is extraordinary about uh, Roland, he's tasting. He's uh, one of the best taster I know.
0: Yeah, is that true? Yeah. What is noticeable about
2: that? He tastes very quickly, precisely. I do not see, I've never seen him taking notes. Because I think he, he just want to know what he does with it. He's very focused, he probably ha- has an idea in mind each time he's tasting a wine.
0: So Spurrier gave you a sort of early introduction to California wine.
2: Yes, he was a uh, seminal, because uh, I didn't know anything about uh, uh, American wine except you know, the, uh, the jug wines that you can find you know, in, the, in the supermarket. So he made a trip there, and he introduced me to uh, all these wines that I, I think some of them are stunning. And you got to
0: try some of the Paris wines, Paris tasting wines.
2: Yes. When Stephen staged it, he said to me, You know, I need tasters that are names, and you're not uh, well known enough. So uh, he called me. He said to me, Okay, I cannot invite you to that tasting. You know the reason, but uh, come with me the morning after. We'll taste the leftover. So we tasted the leftovers, uh, just the two of us.
0: What was that like?
2: Uh, The result was almost the same. So it was extremely embarrassing for the French wines at that time. And uh, uh, Stephen was blacklisted for a few years uh, in Burgundy because of that tasting.
0: You ended up buying some California wine for the restaurant.
2: Stephen and I uh, gave a list of wine we wanted from California. We had one that I tasted with him. And a friend of ours, Pamela Meade, imported the wines. At that time, it was very cheap. So even cheaper, the dollar was uh, at the lowest point compared to the French franc. And uh, we bought a lot of wines from... And unfortunately, I think very few people bought from her. She went bankrupt. This is how I have, you know, wine from the mid-70s the from the state, and some of them are incredibly good. What have been standouts for you? Of course, you know, the, uh, the Heights, the Maya Camas, Sterling... What else is really good? Ridge, of course. Ridge is the closest to uh, Puyac for me. I had a, a vertical tasting of Ridge, was spectacular, and it tasted like uh, well, the young ones are American, but the old ones were French.
0: I know what you mean by that. Yeah, it takes a second for it to make that switch. The way the oak reads, I think.
2: But they were great, and the Zins are fantastic.
0: What do they think about Zin in Paris?
2: I don't know much about Zin in Paris. I love Zin. What the Zin from uh, that incredible uh, lady winemaker? Helen something, no?
0: Helen Turley, the Martinelli Zin? Yes.
2: Well, friends brought me the Zin from her. I think they are spectacular. They are big wines. But they are what they should be. You expect wine from the States to be strong, not not, uh, light and delicate. And... uh, some of them being, you know, in American oak, which has been better.
0: And you've made wine a few times.
2: Mm, not exactly making. You know, I had wine made like I hoped, but I, I cannot control uh, everything because I'm not, you know, on the spot. Yes, I started making special uh, cuvées for myself, you know, in uh, 82. The, the first vintage of the 82. was 82. So that's some time. It was Domaine de Chastelet. It was a première Côte de Bordeaux. And uh, at that time, you know, I wanted to have 100% new oak. So I went down to see him. We tasted the 82, which was easy to taste. And I said, you know, how about uh, putting it in uh, 100% new oak? Incredible strike of luck. The guy was an, an old tonnelier, So we made experiments. We had, you know, 20 different barrels, different oak, different charing, and so on. So we did. And after that, you know, he accepted me to uh, to choose my bottling dates. Because when I tasted the wine, I said, like, you know, it should be kept. It should be bottled or whatever. And uh, the enologist was not very happy because I always asked for extended stay in the barrel. And, well, I was right. After that, you know, with his own
0: wine, he uh, he did what I did. So I believe your restaurant was... Quite fashionable and very cool to be in in the 80s. Is that correct? Yes. Many people came? Yes. And that was when your dad was still alive? Yes. And your dad was Leon? Yes. And he worked for the Citroën car company? Citroën, yes, exactly.
2: So long days for him because it would start 9.30 at Citroën, leaving at 7 and coming to the restaurant and uh, helping us out, uh, with leaving with us at, uh, you know, um, 12.30.
0: What did he think of the restaurant?
2: He was not interested in the restaurant when it started, but uh, when the restaurant became a little bit better known, he took a serious interest in it.
0: And so what was that like uh, in the dining room here? The dining room, which was packed all the time. And who were some of the people that you developed a fondness for that would come by? No, there's not too many uh, celebrities.
2: A lot of celebrities are coming, but uh, I'm not actually friends with them. Right, right, right. Because uh, most of them are, are living abroad. And strangely enough, even with uh, with artists that I like, I rarely develop an actual friendship. There was one that I r- was very close to, but uh, um, I realized it was complicated because uh, sometimes you like the works at an early stage, after that you don't like it anymore, so it's always difficult to be close to people and say, you know, I'm not buying a work anymore. So.
0: But you were friendly with Keith Haring, right?
2: Yes, he came very often. And he brought, you know, Josh Kondo, uh, Kenny Schaff, Because of him, uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat came. But before them, I think it was Schnabel. Schnabel, Salé, Fischel, all these people came.
0: That was really the 80s power generation for art.
2: Yes, and they came. And the most uh, fateful was uh, Schnabel.
0: He took a liking to you and the restaurant?
2: Yes, uh, he loved the restaurant, and I think one of his wife, he
0: met here. Did you lose a lot of plates because of that? You know, because he does the broken plates on the canvas. Yes,
2: I do not have a broken plate, uh, which I regret, but I, I didn't buy one because uh, it's heavy to handle. And at that time, I didn't have the money to buy one. I have two works Schnabel, but uh, not a plate painting.
0: When you say to me that, it's hard to be friends with someone when you don't like their work and that can affect your relationship. That for me implies that there's like a, a moral dimension to taste of aesthetic taste for you. It's, it, it's wrong. <laughs> Is that true? Or am I reading too much into it? Um, Yes, it's more or less true uh, because I'd rather not say that to people. Yeah.
2: So it means that most of the time I don't want to get too close
0: to people. I see. You want to protect your taste. Yes.
2: There are people that I like very much. I guess my problem is, I, if I want to be friend with someone, they have to be, unfortunately, talented, and they have to be good human beings.
0: Yeah. And how did you meet your wife?
2: It was my cousin' wedding, and she was uh, the best girl. And uh, so, Christmas '69. She's a Spanish teacher. She only taught for a few years, and after that, she came to help me. Strangely enough, she didn't study uh, Vietnamese. She studied Japanese, so she has a, a B.A. Yes, in Japanese. She also studied after that gemology. She has a diploma.
0: So, like you, many interests, really. That's true. I feel like that's been a great way for you to keep life exciting for yourself. Was that a fair statement to have many interests?
2: It's strange, but I, I do, in fact, I have many obsessions, and I spend. A lot of time for wine, food, art, cinema. A little bit of literature, but not, not... And, of course, a lot about music.
0: What are the things or events that have been happy for you? Many, many. Yeah. Well, that's good.
2: Yeah, so, so I taste so many great wines. Uh, I ate so many great food. I read fantastic books. I have a very strange... Uh, Stuff about uh, reading because uh, at the same time I didn't read at all. I was just reading, uh, reading things about uh, wine, food, uh, not fiction. And I went back to fiction because I read a book that I uh, I learned that the uh, I spend my time in libraries. In fact, I'm borrowing a lot of books because uh, uh, I do not want to buy books because it, it takes too much room. Exactly. So I read them first, and when I need them, I buy them. And uh, so it means that I sometimes I have to read them twice because I like, you know, underlining, making notes and whatever.
0: Have there been particular disappointments that have happened in your life? Disappointment? Not interesting. Robert Vivian was always finding something new in a glass of wine. Thank you very much for being here today. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skeller has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L-drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the
2: Oh, La Tache is very special. But I'm a bigger fan of the Conti. I still think the Conti is the best of the... Uh, and, uh, you know, almost every year we stage, we open the mixed case of the Conti, and we taste them blind. The most frequent winner is the Romani Conti, in spite of the fact that it can sometimes it can be lighter. But, uh, well, it wins often. Latache doesn't win that often. Romani saint Saint-Vivant is the... Especially in the young vintage, stunning.